I think as a caveat to the worst case scenario considerations, that it is important to also reflect upon the ideal outcomes that may be possible, because we just don't know. And when nothing is certain, anything is possible. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and I'm here to bring you content, conversations, insights, perspectives, and lessons learned that will bring you closer to a deeper appreciation for and relationship with yourself. I'm here to bring you conversations about sexuality, self-awareness, self-development, relationships, intimacy, exploration that will guide you on your journey to deeper self-understanding. Our close relationships account for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well-being. So better relationships really does mean a better life. I'm so happy to have you here with me. And as always, I'm right here next to you along for the ride on this wild, crazy, beautiful journey. Dr. Jeremy Goldberg is a TEDx speaker, PhD, mentor, writer, coach, behavioral scientist, and the founder of Long Distance Love Bombs, whose purpose is to make kindness cool, empathy popular, and compassion commonplace. As a former scientist, he spent years studying the science of human behavior, specifically how attitudes affect action and how we can communicate to inspire greater and lasting change. His work now helps people cultivate compassion, connection, communication, and unlock a deeper understanding of themselves and their purpose. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for stopping in. Good to see you. Yeah, it's a fun one already. So I'm <laughs> excited to be here. Excited to meet you and chat with you for a bit. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I feel like we could have a whole show that's just our prep talk before the show. <laughs> this is perhaps the most prepared I've ever been to be a guest on a podcast. And I've been on like more than 50. I love that. I don't know what that says about who, but I'm into it. I love it. And like, I'm slightly nervous because if I totally bomb, then there are no excuses. Like this in theory will be the best that you get of me. I'll make sure it's the best. Okay. All right. We'll do it justice. And whatever happens is going to be amazing. So here we mm. are. Here we are. Awesome. Well... I would love to have you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are, the work that you do, and how you came to be doing this work. Yeah. So I have this kind of canned monologue that I use for keynotes no and things. No cans but it's, allowed here. Yeah, but it's a very short one. Okay. And it rhymes. Let's do the can, and then let's do like yeah, and then I'll, the and then message I'll in a bottle version. Totally. Then I won't be a robot. But I like to introduce myself rather than saying, 
oh, I am a personal development expert for six years and I help entrepreneurs lose 10 kilos and get to six-figure businesses and 14 razzle-dazzle steps. So instead of that, I say that I am an empathy-collecting, anti-quitting word wizard, that I'm a ferocious never-giver-upper, I am a compassion-cultivating, day-making change agent, I'm a connoisseur and collector of fine silver linings, my name is Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, I'm a recovering scientist turned podcast host, spoken word poet, and life coach, and I started a business called Long Distance Love Bombs, which is aligned with the mission and purpose of making kindness cool and compassion more commonplace. And I host retreats and events and workshops. I joke that I have the whole personal development starter pack, like I've got a nose ring, I wrote a book, etc. And basically, I am a big proponent of helping people to get where they want to go by rewriting the narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves. And the way that I do that is heavily grounded in my academic background as a scientist. And so I formerly, when I say I was a recovering scientist, I worked for many years in coral reef ecosystems. I worked for the Australian government and the American government. I worked on the Great Barrier Reef and I was just a science dork. I still am a science dork, if I'm being accurate and honest. And while I was doing my PhD research, which was all about human behavior and trying to change behavior, I was studying psychology and marketing and communication and messaging and all of these things. And so while I was doing that, I started a side project called Long Distance Love Bombs, where I was writing articles online and I was selling little trinkets at farmer's markets. And I was just feeling so alive and lit up by that process. And I developed a little bit of a following and I was having a positive impact in the world. And slowly, the way that I describe it is that my heart changed its mind. And I had a few epiphanies about living in my worst case scenario. And I decided to buy a rusted van and drive around America, camping and hiking and eating over barbecues and fires rather than pursuing my scientific career in which I had already invested a decade of life force and energy. And that was a big deal for me. But I went all in on this personal development idea. And now I work for myself on the internet, writing and ranting and appearing on great podcasts. So that's like the long and short of it. Great. I already have so many questions that weren't in our preparation. <laughs> so... First, this idea of this epiphany of living in the worst case scenario and that moment that some people describe where they wake up one day and they don't want to keep doing what they were doing and what they had thought that they wanted their whole life or the past few years isn't actually for them or it isn't what they want or it's never what they wanted. People describe these moments, right, in going through divorces or changing careers what happened for you? Why do you think it led to that point in terms of helping other people either recognize if they're on that path or living out of alignment 
or also in retrospect, being able to look back and explain that moment where one thing just changed. I've encountered people where they say, I still don't know what happened. So I'm wondering if you can tell us for you what that experience was like in order to perhaps help other people make sense of their own experiences. Yeah. So for me, I vividly remember, like I just got goosebumps. I don't know if you can see them, but I can actually. I held my arm up to the camera for those listening. It was <laughs> kind of awkward. But I vividly remember sitting in my cubicle at my government desk job, and I had the collared shirt and the short hair and the swipe card. And I was essentially running through different hypothetical scenarios to consider in regards to my future. Because I was finishing my PhD, so that chapter of my life, that season of my life, was coming to a close, and I had some decisions to make. I had to start applying for jobs, and I was going to be moving, and my scholarship was expiring. And at that time, my scholarship was equivalent to money. That was how I paid rent and how I paid for food, etc. So I was kind of in this phase of, okay, man, what are you going to do with your life? And I was kind of daydreaming one day at the office. And for about a year, I had been pulled intuitively to have a big adventure, to just leave the system entirely and to go fill my cup, so to speak. And for me, what that little calling was meant a road trip in a van in America. Like that was just my heart's calling. And the way I describe this is that heart whispers and fear shouts. And so my heart was whispering, like, let's get out of here, man. Let's go buy a van. Let's go <laughs> hug some trees. Let's go do mushrooms in the forest. Like, let's get out of here. And my brain, my fear started shouting at me, this doesn't make any sense. How will you make money? You've already spent the last five years getting your doctorate, and now you're just going to run away and live in a van. You're going to be a doctor living in a van. This makes no sense. What will your friends say? What will your mom think? You knucklehead. This will never work. What are you going to do after that? And so my brain, just the fear shouts and the heart whispers. And for about a year, I had been in the middle of this internal tug of war where I was trying to think my way out of a feeling. And at some stage on this specific day, I realized that that is not sustainable. So for me, I was like, okay, let me run through this idea of not applying for PhD scientist jobs. Let me just dabble. Let me play the imagination game. Okay, I'm gonna sell all my stuff. I'm gonna leave Australia. I'm going to go to America, I'm going to buy an old shitty van, and I'm just going to drive around. Okay, cool. Then what? Well, then I'm going to become a life coach on the internet with this thing called long-distance love bombs. Okay, sweet. And then what? Well, I'm going to try to make some money. Okay, so let's talk about the worst case scenario. If it all goes pear-shaped, it doesn't work out, what's going to happen? okay, I'm going to try to make some money. I'm going to launch some courses. I don't know. I'm going to become a life coach. If I get no clients, if I sell no products, if I make no money, then what? Well, 
I'll probably have to move in with somebody for a minute because I'll be broke. Okay, so you're going to move back in with your mom. Yes. As a 35-year-old with a doctorate. Yes. And you're also going to have no money. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, then what? Well, I'll apply for jobs because I'll have a doctorate. I'll have a decade of experience. I have skills and networks and abilities. I have a good track record. Like on paper, I look legit. I've published scientific papers. I'm qualified for positions. I will probably get another job. Okay. What kind of job will you get? Well, I'll probably get a job where I wear collared shirts and have a swipe card and go and sit in the cubicle all day. And when I got to that point in this thought experiment, I looked at my environment that I was literally sitting in and I had a collared shirt and I had a swipe card and I was sitting in a fucking cubicle and I had this epiphany, which was, oh my God, I'm literally already living the worst case scenario. Like my life right now is the consequence of the worst possible outcome if I try to answer this call from my intuitive heart whispers, and if I take some swings at my dream, and if I go have adventures, and if I follow my destiny, and if I try some cool stuff, the worst thing that happens is that I end up in a situation that is very similar to the one I'm actually in right now. I'll just have different numbers in my bank account. And so for me, it was like, well, giddy up, bro. Like, let's ride. And so I left and I bought a van and then here we are. It's still working. So I'm I'm not currently living with my mom and I have more than zero dollars. So I'm a success. It's like making whatever definition of success that actually inspires you, right? Somebody's definition of success is the life that you were living. And you chose to change your own definition of success, which was trying to go after this idea, this dream that you had. And it's so interesting how through that whole thought process, the realization was, this isn't me opening up to the possibility of living and ending up in the worst case scenario. This is actually about me escaping the worst case scenario that I'm already in. Yeah. And I relate to that very much so, whether that's previous relationships or places that I want to live, or businesses I want to launch, or projects, or posts on Instagram. It goes from the micro to the macro. And what I was trying to do for so long was to essentially talk myself out of my calling, or trying to avoid, or justify, or reason with myself that like, no, you can't do that next thing, even though my whole entire body was adamantly regularly whispering to me like bro this is the next invisible step for you i can't explain it but you can't not do this thing like it just Mm -hmm. has to be done and it's so cliche right you see so many things on the internet about just jump in Mm -hmm. the flow of life and let the river of abundance guide your namaste and all the rest and for me it wasn't that easy to get in the river right to continue that metaphor, I was kind of pacing the shore, talking to the lifeguards and watching people jump in the river. And I was like reading reports about previous people that had jumped in the river. And I, rather than just being like, 
I am so hot and so sweaty. Like I desperately want to get in there. And when I jumped, once I put things in motion, it was sweet. Like I, when I'm driving around, going camping in national parks, etc. like I realized it was hard until it was done, right? And that by putting the stake in the ground and deciding with some certainty, like this is what I am doing with my life. At that point, the certainty somewhat eroded the anxiety. And I realized that clarity is kind of the antidote to that anxiety. Because like, here's what I'm doing. And here's where I'm going. And here's how long it's going to happen for. Like once that was done, I didn't have to worry any longer about the pros and the cons of the decision. All I had to do was action those ideas that I had committed to. One thing I do want to say about taking the jump, right, is sometimes we do have to take this big leap of faith. And sometimes it's really not as big of a leap as we think, right? You can jump in the water and get back out and get dry off and get hot and sweaty again anytime you want. There's this gif of a kitten that I love. It's this little kitten hanging by its claws off the edge of a couch, like dangling for its life. And then its toes are like a fraction of an inch off the ground. It's like almost touching the ground. And I just feel like that is the metaphor for so many people's giant leaps of faith. And that's not to say it's difficult. And that's not to say that it doesn't take circumstances or privilege or time or energy or planning. But it is to say that it's just not always as big or as scary or as difficult once we've actually taken the chance to try on that other life, to try on imagining it or to give it a chance, right? And that sometimes the worst case scenario is actually where we are now. Or sometimes we do that exercise. I love using that exercise with people. And sometimes the worst case scenario actually ends up being like the best case scenario in disguise. Where it's like, worst case, I will have traveled the world for a year and learned all this stuff and met these people. And like, it'll have been a great experience, even if I don't have anything to show for it. So just really love the way you conveyed some of that with the fear shouts versus the heart whispers and kind of that inner struggle between which one to listen to. And I think that heart whisper versus fear shouts is a great way to help people recognize what's going on and not getting confused about which one belongs to you or which one belongs to the old you versus the new you. Yeah. And I would add to that because Usual follow-up questions are either curious in terms of how do you differentiate fear from intuition, which is a Mm -hmm. great question, right? Or it's some kind of critique whereby the person will say, well, that must be nice to be able Mm -hmm. to go and buy a van and quit your job and leave your life and just go fart around for four months. And to the second point, it's like, yeah, it was really nice. And I was very lucky in some regard. And I was very intentional in other regards. Like I made a series of choices in my life that resulted in certain rules for the game of my life that applied to me that allowed me to do that. Right. And so for other people, they might have children, a mortgage, various other commitments that require them to be in a certain place for a certain time. And so 
I often will caution people or advise, like you have your own game of life. And within that game, there are certain things that you can choose or not choose that allow you to sort of quote unquote win to the best of your ability, your version, right? And so for me, like I bought like a $3,000 literal rusted van that the mechanic said, I don't think that you should be driving this. And we named it Rusty. And like, I farted off. Like I would have loved a $100,000 Mercedes-Benz van with the shower inside and all that. But like my game, my rule of life was like, you need to do this. And so I think that's an empowering consideration for people is like, okay, this is about me and my life and my decisions right now. How can I take radical personal responsibility for that and live intentionally? And then to the first question, fear and intuition is, I often say, you get still in that peaceful present moment is where the heart whispers can be heard. And the way to do that in my experience for me personally is to do the best that I can to silence the loud shouting, to quiet the mind, the monkey mind. And so for me, meditation or walks in nature is that. For other people, it might be painting or baths or journaling. So that was just two additions there. And then briefly continue on with this worst case scenario from a relationship context. I remember years ago talking to two friends of mine and they each had significant crushes on these women and had for some time. And they had pedestalized these women as love, like they're, they'll never go out with me, blah, blah, blah. And I remember over pints of Guinness in an Irish pub very long ago, somewhat yelling at these guys, like you, and this is going to be very crude. This is where fear shouts and heart whispers, these are heart shouts. These are heart shouts and like fear with, like, I don't care about your fears right now. From an outside perspective, you currently and desperately want to see these women naked. I was speaking to the primal, very superficial in these guys because I was trying to connect with them. It's like, you want to see these women naked and you're too scared to take a step towards that possibility. And so right now you will never see them naked. Like it's not going to happen. But if you ask them on a date, if you ask them out, if you say to them with honesty and vulnerability, hey, I really am interested in making this more than just a friendship. I would love to explore this, right? Like I like you. If you do that, and there's only a 1% chance that they say yes, like you have a 1% chance of seeing them naked, of like, of having sex with them. Like that is a risk that you in theory on paper should be willing to take because right now you're, you're not doing anything to help you get where you want to go. So like, why not just take the risk? And in the worst case scenario, you're literally already there because you're not seeing them naked now and you're not going to see them naked tomorrow, right? So you have nothing to lose. I hope that comes across as like a reasonable explanation and not me being some misogynistic jerk. I think if it's explained as a metaphor, right? We're like seeing them naked is this metaphor for like how- The best case scenario. Yeah, but also just a way to like make it so blunt of like, you are literally in your current behavior making it impossible to get 
to where you're trying to go, whatever it is, right? Like you continuing is impossibility for whatever like getting naked is. Like if getting naked is going on a road trip, if getting naked is starting your own company, like what is getting naked for you? Yes. Thank you for saving that. That's the metaphor. (laughs) I think I actually really like that because I, it's like, you know, what is getting naked for you and like jumping in the river naked? Yes. Right. You know what? The cool, thank you for salvaging my share. The coolest part of this is that both of those guys are now married to those women and they right. both Right. And when it's with the caveat that it, I had a feeling like you said they really liked them. And so with the context yeah. of like these men are in love with them and Getting yeah, to we see weren't them playing naked like would be... sleep with women bingo. You know, like we're not yes, those guys. It yes. was like pursue the relationship. Bo- no, they're both married. And with children. To those women. Wow. To those same women. Yeah. I don't they think we've told the women about it. They finally did manage to see them naked. They saw them naked. Like, it, <laughs> yes. And if they would have, the point I suppose is they got what they wanted as a consequence of taking actions that like, align with what they desired most and it was scary and it was hard and it forced them to confront fears and all the voices and self-limiting beliefs and perceptions and all the rest and Um, what they wanted right it wasn't just it wasn't actually seeing the women naked it was being naked together but as a metaphor too of like being vulnerable being with them being in love being in relationship with yes but as like early 20s drunk men in an right. Irish bar. Clearly the like, motivation worked. The strategy, yeah. if we're not to judge the strategy, but the impact yes. it had, it sounds and like the, you na- kind of hit it out of the park. Yeah, the intention underneath, I suppose. You got to dangle the right carrot in the right moment. And you knew your I, audience. Thank you. And I'm sure the I'm sure their wives would laugh up. What doors. if their wives love like, yeah. this podcast and they hear it and they're like, oh, yeah, shit, that's right. And they're going to be like, thank goodness. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for dangling the right carrot. So we've talked on the worst case scenario mm-hmm. and the opposite end of that spectrum is the best case scenario. And I think that we often don't consider or let ourselves go to that best case scenario when we consider decisions, our future possibilities. I find that for myself and most of the people that I work with, most of the clients that I coach, that imagination muscle is quite atrophied. And that optimistic, hopeful, creative, curious place where everything works out muscle is not as highly refined or as strong as the pessimistic this will never work out. You don't understand. Here's a mountain of evidence. I could never do that muscle, right? And so as an example, this only happened like two weeks ago. I was doing a thing and somebody was helping me to plan that thing. And we had this date chosen weeks ahead of time. And a couple of days before the event, I got an email from her saying, essentially, I'm so sorry but I can't make this happen in time. I'm falling behind. It's not going to be as good as I want it. Can we please delay your workshop for three days? And also, this is really hard for me to write this email, and I'm so sorry. 
and I'm letting you down and I'm a perfectionist and like, ugh, ugh, I don't love that I have to do this. And what this person didn't know was that for me, this three-day postponement was the best. It made my life so much easier. It was much easier on my schedule. I had plans on the original date that I was going to now have more time hanging out with my friends. It was an ideal outcome. And so I wrote her back and was like, oh, absolutely. This is wonderful. I love actually that we have to do this. And thank you, because I'm definitely going to be using this example in the future as because I highly doubt that you considered the best case scenario when you were sending that email, when you had to postpone it, which was, oh, Jeremy's going to love this. Jeremy's going to be so excited to postpone this thing. He's going to be stoked, right? And she hadn't. And I often don't do that either. And so I think as a caveat to the worst case scenario considerations, that it is important to also reflect upon the ideal outcomes that may be possible, because we just don't know. And when nothing is certain, anything is possible, no matter how improbable or implausible, like we need to let ourselves go to that place where it might all work out. Like people might buy your product, your business might mm -hmm. succeed. That random person at the gym might say yes to you asking them on a date. You might become a famous painter, like your song might catch fire and people will buy it. Like all of it. That makes sense? Yeah. I often kind of use a prompt or a question as a challenge, kind of a perspective challenge that I pose to my clients. And the question is, what if what's best for me is also what's best for the other person or for my family or for my company or for the person who works for me, whatever it is, this question of, well, what if what's best for me is also what's best for them? Rather than stepping into the assumption that those are opposite things and that story perfectly exemplifies what was best for her also happened to be what's what was best for you. One thing that relates that I think about a lot, this story from a program I did that was about the neuroscience of chronic pain, but turns out that chronic pain, physical pain, and emotional pain are the same. They both start in our brain and the way that we kind of feel them and that the brain processes them in the ways that they are healed is essentially the same. And sometimes in this kind of worst case, best case scenario, or a different way of putting it, kind of fear, sometimes the fear of not being good enough at something, is actually a protection from a scarier truth. And so an example that they gave in this program is the story of a girl who isn't good at singing. And so it's like, okay, well, not, most of us are not good at singing. So what's the deal? No big deal. And they say, okay, well, what if her mom was a singer and was almost famous and had this dream of becoming a famous singer and now her ultimate dream for her daughter is for her to be a famous singer. And all of a sudden, if she isn't a good singer, that's completely a different story because now she can't live up to this dream. But what if she is? What if she is actually a really good singer and she could 
live up to this dream, then she has to try and live up to the dream. And the pressure of actually being good enough is even greater. And the fear of not being good enough is a protection because then she either has to live up to the dream or she has to tell her mom that this is your dream and not mine. And even though I could maybe do that, that's not what I want to do. And so just kind of some a parallel story that I feel like really relates. And that is something that's really stuck with me and that I've brought up to a lot of people because sometimes what we're afraid of is actually protection from the opposite of that very thing. Yeah. I love that example. This idea that having that conversation with her mom is scarier than pursuing the dream or vice versa, whatever it was. So it is easier to suffer by not pursuing that career path than it is to have the conversation with her mom and risk rejection, abandonment, disappointment of somebody that she really cares about, right? Yeah. Or the reality of how hard it would be to actually go after the dream. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of that adage, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. And so in the same way, when you claim your dream and you decide, hey, I'm going to go for this, in that moment, you are simultaneously birthing the possibility of a shipwreck whereby you might not get there and it might not work out. And your dream, as you envision it originally, may not manifest, right? And so by putting your foot down by making that choice and that decision to set things in place, you are required to invite the possibility of failure. And it, the same thing is true of relationships, of course. Mm -hmm. I've talked about how the only outcomes for a loving relationship, for an intimate partnership, are grief, death, and heartbreak right? So you either break up and you get your heart broken or they die or you die, right? And so there you go. Like which of those tickets do you want to choose for taking the ride of love, right? And so simultaneously in the same way that the invention of the ship is the invention of the shipwreck, the commitment to be in a relationship requires that the ending is going to be somewhat challenging and painful. And of course, giant asterisk, I've had people on Instagram message me saying, you don't understand, I've broken up with my partner and it was a namaste adventure, love and light. And it's like, okay, sure. Some proportion of us are either enlightened or expert bypassers. But as a sweeping generalization, it's either going to be Grief, death, or heartbreak. Well, when you right? put it that way, no wonder so many people are afraid of love. 100%. And that's a perfect example of living in the fear of it not happening is actually less scary than the fear of it happening and then maybe ending at some point. Right. And you can see why the pain of making yourself unavailable or of choosing unavailable partners is less than choosing available partners, becoming available yourself, doing the work, committing to a relationship, exactly. yeah. being vulnerable, 
sharing parts of your heart with another person and risk them shattering it into a million pieces. But in the same way that death is what makes our life so precious and so valuable, it's the same with love, right? It's the same with any kind of significant risk. Well, a lot of this is, people could say, like the cost or the risk, something that I feel like relates that I tend to think about when faced with certain decisions is what I call the peace of mind investment or payout or whatever it is. It's the value of even if it doesn't work out, even if somehow it is does end up the worst case scenario, the ability to look back and have peace of mind and not be left wondering what if or what could have happened or what would have happened or why didn't I go for it. And so in the end, there's at least the value of that, of having peace of mind and not being left with doubt. Yeah. And I'm reminded of those studies they've done of people on their deathbeds with their most significant regrets. And Oh, you mean the top five regrets of the dying, which is like literally one of my favorite things to talk about and think about. Yeah. And the one I was considering was that most of those regrets relate to things that they did not do rather than things they did do. So I wish I would have asked that person out. I wish I would have taken that chance or gone on that trip. And Yeah. I wish I would have tried living the life that was true to me. I wish yeah. I hadn't worked so hard. That's the other one. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch and I wish I had let myself be happier. And all of those things above would have led to being happier. Yeah. So I think of that when I try to make more interesting choices or choices that make me feel most alive, right? Like I want to choose the most exciting form of suffering. And that's a, you're putting your, your head in your hand, but like, I want to feel fully alive. And so for me, it is a more exciting form of suffering. Define suffering. Like oh, pain is another word, the most exciting form of pain. Because Suffering in some regard is pain that you don't have but to define experience. pain. Is it for the payoff of pain or pain as in challenge or pain as in growth? So that people know what I don't think you're talking about. I want to put my hand on a hot plate and like experience as much pain as possible. Correct. <laughs> It'd be really weird if that's exactly what I meant. I'm like, no. Yes. We so burn again, our hands. as a metaphor, <laughs> I wrote this thing. Years ago, which is courage is knowing that it might hurt and doing it anyway. And stupidity is the same. And that is why life is hard. So courage and stupidity in some regard both indicate that something's going to hurt, but you got to do it anyway. And that line between stupidity and bravery in my experience is very thin and very difficult to interpret. And so for me, it's like, I want to know what it was like to buy a rusted van and drive around America. And the pain of that failure, the pain of that not working out or setting me back or losing my money, like that pain felt very exciting and very alive. And mm -hmm. I felt like the pain 
was like a ticket to a ride that I was willing to bear versus mm. the pain of not buying the van, not going on the trip, staying in the cubicle, getting a government job, having the white picket fence, feeling like my soul was being eaten for years and years and years, and then dying, always wondering what that road trip was going to be like. Like that is a different kind of pain in the same way that burpees and working out are painful, but so is heart disease and busted joints in your knees. Like it is a different kind of pain. And so I think at the core of that, like the foundation of what I'm referencing here is that there are certain decisions which lead to different varieties of pain, which are healthier, more aligned with our integrity, more exciting to us. And that when we can be more intentional about the decisions that we make, those choices manifest as lives which feel more fulfilled, more joyful, more present, more exciting. We make more memories. And that's something that I often consider too when I'm trying to make a decision. It's like, like this is going to be a cool memory. Or, man, this is going to be a great TED Talk one day. Or, gosh, this would be a cool chapter in a book. And th this idea that it's all content. Like, all of my experiences, it's all content. It's all knowledge acquisition. Personal development is business development. Personal development is relational development. Like I am feeling fully alive and I'm embracing and taking chances on myself that align with the intuitive inner whispers. Like I'm in the right place. I got to do this. I can't not do this. Like I need to trust in those decisions more frequently. And this idea that, right, if the fear is pain or if the fear is risk whatever that fear is how can we actually reframe it if not what pain will going after this thing or creating the change cause or what risk am i taking by doing it but what risk am i taking by not doing it or what pain will i endure by not doing it in terms of the stupidity versus courage, I feel like stupidity is more not knowing it's going to hurt and doing it. But I was imagining Jackass, like the cast of the TV show Jackass. And I feel like there was actually a really important intersection of those two things. Because I was like, are the things that they did, were they, you know, definitely bravery maybe a necessary combination of the two. Yeah, it was like a sprinkle of stupidity across all of that, perhaps, like a glitter. And some of that, maybe you write by stupidity, if we're not saying, oh, that was stupid, but again, using it as a metaphor, is just not overthinking what all the potential downsides would be and stepping into the bravery without needing to overthink it and go through every scenario and needing to know you have five safety nets. Yeah. And maybe naivete is a different word choice that might help those listening to understand or unpack that a bit more. Right. And one thing I've learned though, is that we are brave because we take action. Like we don't take action because we're brave. It is this kind mm -hmm. of cyclical mm -hmm. unpacking of these mm -hmm. ideals that I think we don't necessarily realize or recognize to our own detriment, right? It's like, oh, if I was brave, how would I act? Well, I would do X, Y, and Z. 
okay, cool. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Even though I don't necessarily feel brave in this moment, I recognize because I've reflected and considered and talked to other people that like, this is actually the brave thing to do. And so I'm going to do those things. Even if I'm feeling scared, weak, trepidatious, it's like hard until it's done is that other cliche that I really like. It's like, it's hard until it's done. When it's done, it's not so hard. When you were introducing yourself, I was quite impressed that you've managed to memorize all of that with your (laughs) very long one-liner. And I noticed that you like alliteration as much as I do. Two of the questions that came up for me, and the latter actually brings us to a couple of these mystery keywords and stories that you have given for me to ask you about, were... You mentioned rewriting narratives, and I was curious what some examples are or an example of when you've had to rewrite a narrative. And obviously, that is already interwoven in what we've been talking about. And also, you mentioned silver linings, and I was curious what one of the toughest silver linings is that you've ever had to sew or come up with or dig to find. And that brings me into that one of these points here, which you had given me in our mystery list of prompts, which was silver lining cultivation. So one way to describe myself would be that I am currently someone who I used to make fun of when I was younger. Like, I'm a vegetarian. It's like, oh, you don't eat meat? And like, I don't drink alcohol anymore and it's like oh you're too good to drink like oh what's wrong with you like oh cute nose ring bro like i've become somebody that i literally used to mock i used to tease guys like me i had a man but i i don't have it now but like i had a man but it's like oh man take a bath you hippie right and so i have shed various parts of myself through the years and I think it, did you shed them or did you like uncover them? I think I uncovered them and then shed them. Or a different way to say this would be that my identity has evolved in a more in a fuller way, I guess. And so we all have done this. I have different identities. I'm at many points in my life a different person. So I'm a student, I'm a driver, I'm a brother, I'm a boyfriend, I'm a son, I'm a employee, I'm a boss, etc. And these little parts and pieces they fall away. Sometimes I outgrow them. And so for a while I was a scientist and I was also a PhD student. And for a long time that was very much aligned with my hopes and my dreams. And as I said before about hearts changing their minds, at some point I realized, oh, there is parts of me that align with that. Like I will always be a science dork and I will always be a doctor because I have a PhD. But there are other pieces of me that are now larger and more pronounced that feel more aligned with my true self. And so things like writer, coach, I'm trying on different hats from a broader perspective, something that I 
and my friends have given a lot of thought to is what does it mean to be a man? This is a whole separate podcast, but like, what kind of man do I want to be? And what does that mean? And who do I need to become and who do I need to leave behind? What parts of myself do I need to leave behind to step into this role as a man, as a good man, as a partner to my girlfriend? Other roles include parenting. Like I haven't had that one yet. What does it mean to be a dad? So there's that. And then the second point about silver lining cultivation, the one that came to mind when you said that was around my mom's alcoholism. And so my mom was an alcoholic. Well, she, sorry, she corrects me when she hears me on the podcast. My mom is an alcoholic. She is in recovery. She has been in recovery for nine years, which means she's nine years sober, but she nearly died and she was hospitalized. And for several years, it was not good understatement of the episode, but our relationship was not good. Her health was not good. She was literally hospitalized. She used to vomit blood. It was bad. And for me, in the same way that I learned about walking by falling and I learned about trust through infidelity, I learned a tremendous amount about helplessness from my mom's experience battling addiction. And I learned a whole lot about codependency and I learned a whole lot about boundaries. And that was a really brutal educational experience for me. But on the flip side of it, with some time and some healing and some perspective, and thankfully her getting out of it, getting through it, I learned a lot of lessons. These are like the examples of being cheated on and feeling heartbroken and betrayed and all the rest where I'm drowning in my own snot and feeling empty inside and realizing this is going to be funny one day, but not today or gosh, I'm going to look back and I'm going to learn a lot from this experience, but I hate that this is happening to me right now. And so I think part of the process of cultivating silver linings is realizing that it takes time and that often in the moments where the metaphorical field is on fire and everything is burning down, nothing is growing in those moments, right? And so for me, it was, I needed some time, some space, some perspective to reflect upon the silver linings that were hiding amidst the ash and the rubble. Yeah. And then after that, that is when things grow back and actually sequoias are like, have evolved to grow back through ash and use that regeneratively, right? And the whole idea of becoming stronger as a result. But yeah, grounding down in the fact that for people listening, right, it's not that you're supposed to be sitting there on fire and like, oh, this will be great one day. Because you see so much of that. And when you're on fire, maybe it's the best time to go jump in the river. Get in the fucking river, right? (laughs) That is it. I see that in a relationship too, is like people get to rock bottom and they persist a while 
until eventually it's like, I can't be here anymore. Like I will go anywhere, but here, I don't care. I need to get out of here. One of the things that comes up, I think for people when we're either shedding these versions of who we used to be or wondering, was that just never me in the first place? Was that dream that I had actually somebody else's culturally constructed because of my family, because of expectations? How would you suggest people can tell the difference of like, oh, that was who I used to be versus that was me trying to be something I never was? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. I think it's easier in hindsight and it's easier post epiphany. By epiphany, I mean, where you have that moment of clarity that lands on you. And once you know it, you can't unknow it. It's like, oh my God, I've been living a lie. Or, oh my God, I don't even want to be an accountant. I'm doing that because my grandpa loved my dad for being an accountant or whatever. I am a big fan though of working with people to help you unpack your blind spots and your biases and to offer new perspectives to consider. I'm also a big fan of, for me, meditation, but any kind of awareness practice or cultivation of the present moment. Breathwork, as an example, is a modality that can help you to unpack or dislodge parts and pieces that you don't even realize are in you. So there's a lot of different ways up the mountain, so to speak. But I think at the heart of it is awareness practice, is cultivating a more intimate understanding of who you really are, including your motives and why you do the things that you do. And from that clear more aware place, it is easier to look back at your decisions and look forward to your possibilities from a place of centered knowing rather than a mask or a disguise that feels like yourself but is not actually who you are. And a lot of what you're talking about is supported by this idea which you also talk about and recently did a workshop on of reclaiming your voice and some of the different parts, right? Reclaiming your dream or your best case scenario or your worst case scenario, reclaiming the life you want to live or the relationship or your power to change the situation and reclaiming your voice. Some of the themes that come up under that, that you've mentioned when you talk about this topic is how to have difficult conversations, confidence, managing overthinking, storytelling, identifying and clarifying subconscious beliefs. I wanted to ask you about a few more of these mystery prompts that you've given me, but I also wanted to quickly ask, what do you think, and I'm sure this is hard because there are so many, but what's the number one key ingredient for being able to reclaim your voice? So when I was in high school, my mom was a preschool teacher. I helped out on weekends. I helped out during the summer and I essentially worked at a preschool and I was helping the kids play ball and paint and open juice boxes and make sure that they didn't drown during their swim time, et cetera. And one thing I realized in 
hanging around with tiny humans and toddlers all day long is how vocal and expressive they are about damn near everything. So they got a dirty diaper, they're screaming. If somebody took their toy, they're shouting at them. If they want a piece of chocolate, they're letting you know. If, you, if they have something to say to you and you're not listening, they are just talking until they are heard. And it was my experience that all of these little kids not only had a voice, but they used it. And they didn't give a shit about how that was received from time to time. And I think the most important thing to remember is that you have a voice and that you can use that voice in however and whenever you want to say whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. And so the voice is essentially like the activation of agency. Like it is the possibility opener. It is like pure potential housed in your throat. Like you have it, it's there. You may not have used it in a really long time. You might feel blocked. You might have thoughts that prevent you from using that. But that voice, I promise that is in you. It is there. And so we find our voice by using it. And so I would just drop this idea that you have it, it's there, you know how to use it. And rather than learning how to use it, it might be helpful for you to consider unlearning how not to use it. And the reasons that you have learned not to use it, how it benefits you not to use it, why that has happened, who taught you that, etc. And then to consider finding some humans in your life, whether that's me or Sasha or your friends or your family, find people that are using their voice in a way that inspires and delights you and pay closer attention to them and kind of reverse engineer how they do it. I often advise clients to just start trying shit. It's like, just try some shit. Find a Run safe experiments. place. Yep. That's what, I, some data. that's what I tell people. Yeah. You know, find a Bring friend. Bring back that, to the science, run experiments. Find a friend that feels try safe. Try things on, exactly. The only way to figure out what is you is to try different things on. Yeah. You talk to people and it's like, how, so how did it go? What's the update? And it's like, I loved it. I use my voice, in, whether that's the bedroom or the boardroom. Like I spoke up and like, and it worked fine. And like, I loved it. And then like, you see, you see the little twinkle in the eye and you see the kind of like shoulders have a swag. There's a bit of confidence returned. And I suppose the other thing I would add for everything that I've talked about is, is that it's a process and it's a project that takes time. And it's a practice, right? And so being graceful and gentle and forgiving and understanding of yourself as you navigate the change underway, I think is a really important thing that like has a high leverage in terms of providing benefits more than we consider. So like being gentle, being accepting, being loving to ourselves as we navigate all of this stuff. And above all, remembering that it's 
we're unlearning. We're not learning something new. We're unlearning the things blocking us from it. And yeah, muscle memory. Yeah, we're essentially that voice or that voice was taken or muted or whatever. But it's not that you don't have one. We're returning home to ourselves and who we used to be. One of my invitations to guests on the show is sometimes more than others, a conversation might be very theoretical and always trying to give people practical, actionable takeaways to kind of ground down in how can people actually take this and start applying it to their own lives. Let's do that. Let me give the listener a very practical thing that they could do today that aligns with using their voice, taking a chance, feeling in a more exciting version of pain or risk. So one, one way that I taught this a couple of weeks ago was we're all familiar with this idea that there's an elephant in the room. We should address the elephant in the room. And it might be this secret or it might be this energetic thing. Like maybe it's like the elephant in the room and it's like, ugh, it's there. And I find this with my partner, it might be a conversation that we need to have or a thing that was said that we haven't cleared yet. And it's like, eh. And then I've heard the old adage around, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. And so then I was like, oh, this is a fun idea. How do you eat the elephant in the room? And what I came up with was one bite at a time, like one sentence at a time. And so one thing I hear from clients often is, I don't know how to have a hard conversation. I don't know how to start a hard conversation. And the way that you would eat the elephant in the room is to literally state that with the person. So for example, hey, Sasha, I don't know how to start this conversation and I feel really awkward right now, but I need to talk to you about John. And like, guess what? You're underway. Like the conversation has started, right? Or just saying, hey, Sasha, I feel sweaty and nauseous right now. And it's like, hey, cool. Guess what? We're conversing. The hard conversation is underway. And so oftentimes simply speaking to the elephant in the room, I find is like often the most practical and reasonable way to begin the journey. It's like you're jumping in the river to use that example from before. Like rather than dancing around on shore and dipping your toe in, it's like, where are just saying like, yo, I'm sweaty, this is awkward and we should probably talk about that thing that happened, right? It's like, yeah, we should. I like the specific examples and the, the adjectives because I'm sure a lot of people can relate and literally take those away and use those. What about when it's a difficult conversation with ourselves? Oh. How do we start that one? That's a good one. I think it's the same way. So should do an asterisk rewind before having a difficult conversation with somebody. Like, don't just walk up to them when they're in the middle of reading a book and eating a sandwich and crying and just be like, hey, I'm sweaty and awkward. I have some things to talk about sex life. It's like, no, don't do that. Check in with them. Hey, are you available right now? Are you busy? Do you have 20 minutes? 
Like, are you open to a discussion? Like that would be the caveat to open the door to eating the elephant. And so for me, I think when you talk about having a tough conversation with yourself, one of the best ways to do that is like getting external support, whether that's a coach or a therapist or a, a friend that will support you through that. Or it's make some time, create some space, put it in your calendar, block it off, commit, go for a walk to your favorite place and be intentional about having that time to think and time to converse with yourself. Another trick that I've heard that I really like is from this author, Derek Sivers, and he talks about the idea of creating a fictional sort of board of directors in your brain, a group of mentors. And it's like, okay, thanks for coming, everybody. I've got Jesus, I've got Bill Gates, I've got my grandma, and I've got Tony Robbins at the table. And they're all just in my head. And I'm just going to go around and hear from each of them about what they think of my current situation and what they would do. I'm like, what advice would they give me? Jesus, you go first, right? And you're essentially having a conversation with yourself via these different archetypal figures that are allowing you to access these different parts and pieces of your perspective. And so that's another way that can be helpful or just even friends in your life. Like I have a client and she says that she has a friend that she knows that when she is intentionally avoiding her calls or intentionally not reaching out to her, it's because she is going to hear something that she doesn't want to hear. And so maybe you have a certain friend or person in your life that you're like, I want them at my board of directors. So maybe you go for a walk and just have an imaginary back and forth with them. Or maybe you just need the compassionate, kind version of yourself and you have a dialogue with them. So those are all different ways to have that talk with yourself. And sometimes having those labels or personas and being able to step into personas can be a helpful tool to try on other perspectives. I've heard really interesting tools that people use for kind of facilitation and decision making where maybe you step, for example, if this were for your company and they needed to make a decision, okay, some one person wears the hat of the customer, the engineer, the salesperson, and the board member, right? Just as an example for startups or something. And you stand in a circle and each person takes turns voicing, stepping into the role of that person and voicing the opinion and then rotating and everybody tries on the different perspective as a way to cultivate empathy, try on different perspectives, hear different voices. And so you can also do that for different personas in yourself or personas in your life as one person or actually get other people to do that with you. So trying on different perspectives and if it is helpful to use that tool or that label or that joke or whatever to allow you to actually dare to do that, then go ahead and do that. And then the other thing that I would say that came up when you were talking is the importance of stepping into difficult conversations through the lens of curiosity rather than criticism. And whether that's with ourselves or with somebody else, not jumping to judgments and criticism, there's such a big difference between 
why did you do that? And, oh, that's interesting. I'd really be interested to know what inspired you to do that or how did that decision come up? And I know that can be like, you're laughing. That can be difficult, but no, it's man, it's great. I heard this example. And it, for people listening, please go back to the episode. I think it's probably spoiling sessions of this couple I interviewed. And it was the example where the guy had the early stages of dating and he came out of the bathroom and he was like, yeah, I was just browsing Tinder. And she was just like, rather than her being like, what the fuck? She literally fully stepped into curiosity and said, oh, in- interesting. Tell me, what are your thoughts on using Tinder in this relationship, this stage of our relationship? And I know that's like level 10, like you've beat the game, but you know, in an example that isn't quite as extreme or funny, challenging yourself to find a way to step into curiosity rather than criticism because you're going to learn so much more. You're going to be able to explore so much further, so much deeper, and you're going to heal so much more as a result. I think sometimes we need to go away from what feels like we want to do in a moment, like a Chinese finger trap. Sometimes you have to go the opposite direction, and that's what's actually going to free you and get you closer to where you want to go. Yeah, I was hoping we'd talk about Chinese finger traps on this podcast. I'm glad you- I just, there you go. It wasn't even on the prompt list, but I knew. I love all of that, and I second it wholeheartedly. The thing that made me smile was just the subtle distinction and energy between why did you do that? And why did you do that? I was laughing because my partner, who's amazing and I love her, and sometimes she will say things to me in that tone of genuine curiosity and love. But I now know like, oh, what? Uh-oh. <laughs> you just hear the other one. Your brain auto-corrects like, and is like, like, just translates it to why did you? <laughs> yeah, I just like when a dog will like, tilt its head to like triangulate your sensations as you're holding something. And it's like, I feel that happens with people sometimes where I'm like, oh, uh uh-oh. But yeah, definitely agree. The underlying intention is huge. If we can cultivate kindness, self-compassion, loving, that's the way. Wonderful. And most importantly, starting with all that towards ourselves. Yes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this adventure, this journey that we went on today and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Sasha. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime if you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism. We'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the book club newsletter where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. 
Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.